Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Abdu Murray. There are times when you uh, sit there and you fully appreciate the austerity of a moment you're privileged to be a part of. It becomes uh, overwhelming. I want you to think of the privilege you have just to be sitting here. Really soak it in for a moment. I was not thinking about this until sitting right there. And then overwhelmed by the feeling standing right there. And hearing those words and seeing these people. For the privilege you have to be sitting there. Okay, I'm collected. (laughs) I was thinking about, so I was thinking about this idea of what we're here to do. You know, this is part of the Come and See series here, and uh, what a privilege it is to be a part of that. And I think about what it means to come and see. And one of the things that suddenly comes to the mind as I think about this idea, come and see, is sort of a more, less of an austere, less of a uh, holy kind of a thing. It's just come and see the next movie premiere. You know, the next thing that's going to be online and, or the next thing that's going to be at the theaters. We, we go and see. Um, and I was, I was thinking about that, that phrase. Something occurred to me. How often, how often you see gospel imagery in things that don't really have the main purpose being the exposition of the gospel. In popular culture, we see this over and over again. I want you to consider the fact that in so many movies, so many stories, novels, whatever it might be, where people have written something or it's on the screen, where there's a moment of transformation, where there's the protagonist protagonist has gone through some level of hardship or personal struggle, whether it's actually physically, you know, there's challenges and they have to make it over and conquer some kind of evil they're trying to conquer or maybe that evil is in their own hearts, whatever it is, over and over again, you see this imagery of the protagonist or some main figure in a movie or in a novel who goes through something and then somehow they're immersed in water. They find themselves immersed in water or covered in water. And that is a turning point in the story. You see it in all kinds of things, not just Christian movies or, you know, stories written by people who are people of faith, but in secular stuff all the time. I want you to think about it. Really go through in your mind at some point, not necessarily right now, I'll give you a couple of examples and I'll do it for free, um, but there's got, uh, I want you to think about the next time you watch a movie, how often this imagery of being soaked in something and then emerging from the waters, cleansed or having a new understanding or a new courage to go forward, how often this actually happens. The next time you watch a movie, somewhere along the line, you're going to see something in the next three or four movies you watch where you're going to find something that's this kind of imagery. It's fascinating to me that this kind of thing persists, even in a post-Christian culture, one that is increasingly antagonistic to the gospel, but can't seem to shake it off. We're so soaked in it. We're so soaked in this gospel that no matter how much we get angry at it, it's in us. It's on us. We can't seem to get rid of it. We cannot seem to get rid of it. I think of the movie um, Shawshank Redemption. 
movie that, uh, just asking your reaction I just heard from the audience about this movie. Everyone's seen this movie, you know. It's a pretty rough movie at times. But it's a story of Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne is falsely accused of murdering his wife after finding her um, in, locked in arms, essentially, in, a, uh, in an affair with another man. And um, he's accused of murder. He is convicted of that murder falsely, and then goes to prison, goes to Shawshank Prison. And there he begins to find redemption, because even though he didn't do the actual crime, there's this interesting scene where he basically admits his own sin. And he says, no, I didn't kill my wife. I didn't do that. But I was a cold, unfeeling, determined, and calculated man. And I am at least partly responsible for what she did in her own life and how I messed up our marriage a long time ago. And so he recognizes his own sin. But if you know the story, and if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to ruin it for you. Um, uh, <clears throat> there's, this, 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 there's this scene, of course, where Andy has plotted his escape, and he's been plotting it for decades. And he finally figures out how to do it, and he ends up swimming through a tunnel of human sewage. And it is a symbol, a not-so-subtle symbol, of him having to work through his own sin, about working through the human condition and how awful and ugly and vomitous it actually can be. But at the end of that that passage, when he comes out of that horrible condition, he emerges and the sky lights up because the lightning is there and the rain pours down and he's washed and he's got his arms out in a cross-like posture. By the way, this is a movie based on a novel by the horror novelist Stephen King. I don't know if you knew that. Wasn't made by overtly Christian people. Wasn't written by overtly Christian people. And yet the message of this idea of being so soaked in something that you are washed of all the things that used to seem to soak you is so powerful. You see this even in mundane movies or movies that have nothing you know, intensely you know, inspirational at the end of it. You see it in action movies. You see it in the, in the Matrix. The hero, Neo, doesn't really become the hero until he is sort of literally flushed out of a system and into a pool of water. And after he is brought up out of the water, then he realizes who he really is. You see this over and over. I can give you countless movies. City of Angels is another movie just like this. I can give you countless ideas and examples of movies where this idea is so there. There is this compelling nature to the gospel message that the culture adopts because they see the compelling imagery there. But I really think there's something that they've wanted to come to see. And they have a vague understanding of it. And then they sort of muddle through it, don't quite get it, don't quite fully understand. They have a semblance of it, never fully knew who the Lord Jesus was, but they can't seem to get rid of him in their own minds. And so they put him in their novels, they put him in their movies, we put him in our music, we can't help it. But we don't really know him because we truly haven't come to see yet. And so this reminds me of the passage in the Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. I'm going to read all of it, all 13 verses, because I think the context is terribly important, especially for you folks as you're here, candidates to be, to be baptized today. And it sort of reminds me how the culture has acted. The culture has a semblance of what it means to believe. They don't have a full understanding, and some people are actually looking into it, but they don't really know what to do with what they have. They don't know what to do with what they have. And so you read in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Now the Lord 
himself has risen. He has ascended to heaven. He has commissioned his disciples to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of every nation, just as he has commissioned you and I to do so. And so they're out doing this. And there's tremendous revival. There's people by the thousands coming to faith. The church is now being born. It's being organized. There's all kinds of things happening. And so this is where the context of what we're finding here. And there is an Ethiopian eunuch who is on the road. And you'll read the, the, the passage itself, but there's some some real context here because that man actually has tremendous influence within a, within a royal family. And Philip, this fisherman, essentially, the shepherd, influences this man. Let me just pause for a moment there and say something I just literally thought of. Philip influences a man of tremendous influence himself. And he's not afraid to do it because he listens to the Spirit. I mean, it literally starts off with the Lord compelling Philip to go to a certain place. If you feel like you can't have a message because you're a little too small, I want to encourage you. The mightiest have been influenced by the meekest. And that, that might include you. Let's read. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's close to the queen. I mean, it's amazing. Who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. See, he had a semblance of of God. He kind of knew that there was a God. He knew that this God is deserving of his worship. And he came to Jerusalem to worship. I don't think he actually knows what he's doing. He's there, he's like, I'm just responding to what I do know. God has given me something. I don't know what it is exactly. I have no idea what I'm talking about. All I do is respond. I go and I'm doing this thing. There's this element of faith. There's this kindle. There's this Holy Spirit spark. Even in someone who hasn't yet committed his life to the Lord. And he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was uh, reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, the fact that he was seated in a chariot, by the way, is a symbol of power. And along comes Philip. I love the way it it actually uh, describes it here, where this man who was seated in his chariot, this man of power and influence, and reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran. Philip doesn't have his own vehicle. (laughs) Philip has to run up to this guy. And you can see the juxtaposition of power, right? You got somebody who seems meek, mild, and of low station, and he has to run up to this guy, this powerful guy, and run up to him and said, and heard him reading Isaiah and the prophet. Now, of course, the guy was reading it out loud because he heard him and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? That's humility. That's humility. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Why would he invite this guy? Of all people, you? You don't look like a rabbi to me. Where's your fancy stuff? He invites him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? That's insightful. That is insightful. This is someone who's actually really caring. He's not just reading something because I'm supposed to read it. He's really wanting to know what it says. And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, 
he takes the man where he's at. He doesn't say, I got a bunch of other scriptures that I want to tell you about, so can you put one on the side? No, I'm going to go with that one. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? I love that eagerness. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. There's so much in this story. You know, I love, sometimes the Bible says things in ways that are like, okay. Um, They came to some water. Remember, they went to a desert place. They came to some water. I don't think it was a big sea. Um, We have no idea. We have some idea. We don't have a really great idea of what that body of water looked like. Was it a lake? Was it a pond? Was it a river? Was it a pool of muddy water? Was it a puddle? But it doesn't matter to this guy. What mattered to the Ethiopian at this moment was, I need to be baptized right now. Right now. This is an interesting thing, friends, because understanding, true understanding, when you have truly come to see and someone helps you see as you've come, there's a reaction. There's a reaction. So the culture out there, the post-Christian culture, has some level and some knowledge, like this, like this eunuch did, where he reads the scripture sort of, and he's like, I don't quite get this. And there's some reaction to it. There's some implementation of a gospel message or a gospel like idea in their expression of their life, but they don't truly get it and truly understand it. Along comes someone who says, I can help you with this. I've experiencing, I came and I actually saw, do you want to know what this is about? And someone says, yes, and things change. So let me just, you know, if I can focus on Mike and Lisa, my friends here. I hope you don't mind this, guys, but um, I'm going to embarrass you a little. Uh, Or not embarrass you, I'll just focus on you a moment. Mike and Lisa are a candidate to be baptized. Didn't meet them very long ago. Lisa became a believer not too long ago and was eager to get baptized, much like the story we just read. Mike was not yet a believer. And they came to a church service I was speaking at, And um, they wanted to ask me some questions. Mike and I share a very similar background. And Mike had a lot of questions. Now, Lisa said she didn't have a lot, but she had a lot. Um, (laughs) It was between services. I was speaking at three different services that morning, and it was between services. We had minutes, literally minutes, to talk and share. And so I said, hey, you know what? Come to our office. If you're okay with this, come to our office, and we'll spend some time together. And so Mike and Lisa came to our office and sat with Nicole and I, For two hours, for two hours, they both, both of you, peppered me with questions. It was great, it was fantastic, and they were good questions, and they were deep questions, and they weren't run-of-the-mill questions. They were serious questions, and they were like, yeah, but what about this, and I don't understand that. Oh, that, okay, I get this now, and we're moving on, and moving on, and moving on. And it was clear at at some point in the course of our conversation where this was going, and the Holy Spirit was moving, and... It was, there was a, uh, an impulsion within them and there was a compulsion from without that was telling them, this is something you need to make a part of your life. And Mike wasn't yet a believer. And so Nicole asked the wonderful question, what's holding you back? And Mike's answer was, I don't know, nothing. And he got saved in the hallway of our office. It was a tremendous moment. Do you see the weird parallel here? You know, I want to just tell you this, friends. Mike and Lisa, your story is predicted in the pages of Scripture. 
You had some understanding because it was obvious from their questions. They had a level of understanding. Lisa already having committed her life, her life to Christ, wanting to make the next step forward. Mike knowing about God, knowing about these things, but not fully understanding what it is. And that's why the questions came. And so someone had explained it to him. And almost immediately he said, what's preventing me from getting baptized? And here he is right now. I can't tell you the number of conversations we'd had about trying to time it and try to figure it out. We actually thought about just going to some, some body of water and just dunking them and it's done, let's do it. But here he is, along with everyone else, all of you. I don't know what led you here to this particular moment where you've decided I'm gonna make this public declaration of faith. I don't know what that is. Um, I know their story because God gave me the privilege of being a part of it, but he's also given me the tremendous privilege of being a part of yours today because I get to get in this tank with you today. What a pleasure. What a privilege. What an amazing thing. It really is something. Understanding leads to action. And the body of believers that's gathered here is a body of believers who are now required to, sorry, you didn't know you signed up for this, but this is how it works as being part of a church. We need each other. You are to make disciples. Discipleship is a part of the process. Whether you've been a believer for quite some time and this is, your, this is a baptism that has some significance for you, either you've become a believer newly or you've never been baptized or this is something else in your life that is a new, new chapter, we're all in this together. <clears throat> we're all part of the discipleship process now and we can learn from you just as you can learn from us. And this is what it's all about for us to do this together. But I'm gonna tell you something, friends. Um, <clears throat> With baptism, there is something you're doing. You're identifying to the world in a public declaration, I belong to someone now. And that which I used to belong to, that which enslaved me, is going to go down in this water, and it's not coming up. Does that mean you're, going to have, you're not going to have struggles? No. Does that mean that no more temptation will ever haunt you or stalk you in your life? The answer is a very much no. But does that mean that you have someone who is your advocate, someone who can empower you to deal with it? Well, the answer is yes. I remember my own baptism story. You know, I, I became a believer 23 years ago. And I uh, didn't get baptized for a year, a little longer than a year. And there was some, some fear behind it. What are the consequences of this public declaration? Am I really going to do this? Am I really going to make this public statement about my own faith? Because I knew that there would be some consequences to it. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is not something that you enter into lightly. And by the way, as I pause here, I want to say this as well, is that there are people over the course of this week, a couple of people, not a couple, it's like, I think that the, the candidacy doubled in size since Pastor Tony's very compelling invitation. And I'm going to try to my very hardest to at least match it a little bit and say, I'm going to invite you too. If you haven't signed up to be baptized, there's no good reason not to be. And you say, well, I, I brought my church clothes. We got clothes for you. So there's no reason for you to say no. But if this is your moment, if this is your moment, I want to warn you of something before I invite you to something far more glorious than any warning I could give. Things change. You've made a public declaration of faith. Satan hates this. He hates this moment very much. And I have news for you. He intensely hates you because he even more hates the Lord you serve. 
and you're identifying with, that means there's going to be some trouble. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The Bible predicts it. But there is a strength. There is this beauty. There is this shield. There is this moment. There is this church. There is this body of believers who surrounds you who says, we can do this together. I got the same stuff you got. Let's go in it and do it together because we've now identified with the one who has overcome the world. You know, I needed the sacrament of baptism to give me courage at a time when I felt like I had none. I needed that sacrament of baptism to give me that courage. And I remember when I was praying and Nicole and I were praying and I said, I gotta do this now. I've gotta do this publicly. I've gotta make this declaration. Otherwise I'll be stuck in this thing where I keep spinning my wheels and I keep putting mud into the wheels. I don't give it more traction. I give it more, more mud, more things to get rid of. I need to do something that shakes me out of this. And baptism was a part of it. And I got baptized in the building next door when it was the only building on this, on this plot of land. And it gave me that, and a full recognition of what was to come. You know, the public declaration you make here, you're saying, I belong to Christ, I'm making a public profession of faith. When you do that, you have made a statement to a world that is not all that interested in helping you become a Christian or stay that way. So there's a scarlet letter that attaches to it as well. But as you plunge into these waters and you emerge, the first advice I want to give you is, I want you to soak in every bit of the moment. You may not remember a thing I say after this, and I don't really care, it's okay. I want you to remember the experience you've had. This is typically done once. And if it's more than once for you, that's fine. But this is typically the kind of thing that is a moment, a holy, austere moment. I want you to remember what it's like to sit there right now being cheered on by a lot of people who love you. I want you to remember what it's like to go back there and get ready and stand in line. I want you to remember what it's like to stand before the tank. I want you to remember what it's like to, to, to wonder, is the water cold or is it warm? It's warm, by the way. Um, right? It's warm. You guys warmed it up? Okay, good. It's last time. I'm going to be in there a long time, so I want you guys to warm this thing. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember what it's like to stand there at that moment where I'm going to ask you some questions right before. In a private moment, we're not going to make a public spectacle of what I say. Who cares what I say? I'm going to ask you some questions, and you're going to profess your faith. And on that profession of faith, I'm going to baptize you. And in the moment, don't be panicked about whether you get water in your nose, none of that stuff. It'll be fine. I promise I did it. It's okay. When they go down, I want you to feel, remember what it feels like to be washed in that water, to have that warmth surround you, and then what it feels like to come out and leave the other behind, and it stays there. It's in the grave forever. It does not resurrect. What does resurrect is something new. And with it comes the trouble, but also the glory, also the sublimity. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, it won't be on your screen, but it'll be something I want you to hear, okay? Paul says that he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He came and he saw. Paul was reluctant. Paul was actually an enemy, but he came and he saw. This man of tremendous letters, tremendous background, someone who was so unbelievably qualified to be a rabbi said, all that stuff, my good name, all that stuff, I count it as nothing because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection coming out of that water and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That's a, that's something. I never want to invite you without you having the whole picture. And by the way, if you're here and you haven't signed up yet and you're feeling something inside you that says, I want that, I want to invite you to the whole thing, the good and the troubling. But the reality is, friends, I've experienced that and there's so many in this room who've experienced that. And I can't tell you how many times I've asked myself, what did I do and is it worth it? And every time, every time, the answer was yes and then some. It has been worth it a thousand times over, no matter what has come. And there's something about this sacrament that gives you that. If you have yet to experience that kind of a thing in your Christian walk, or you don't know who Christ is and you came to see your loved ones go through something important to them, but you're here just to support them, you're not here because you fully buy in, but you've come to see them, we're inviting you to come to see the Lord who transformed them in this way. There's something about this message of the gospel that they're identifying with that I want to share with you in the next minute or two, and then we'll close. And it's this. What they have accepted, what you have accepted, is a message that speaks to the heart and to the mind and forms a message that appeals to the full person. You read in John 1, 29 and verse 34, you know, in this whole come and see avenue, you see two things. John the Baptist, the one who leapt in his mother's womb when he and Jesus were both in the womb together. Her cousin Elizabeth, sorry, Elizabeth, his mother Elizabeth is cousin to Mary. And when they came in proximity to each other, when they were not even but yet born, John the Baptist was so destined to be the one who cries out that Jesus has come, that he, in his mother's womb, leapt. He actually did something. There was a reaction inside. This is the man we're talking about here. And when he sees Jesus and he baptizes Jesus so that all righteousness can be fulfilled, the scripture tells us the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, See, come and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're not just coming to see some guy teach a lot of good things. Right. You're not just coming to see some guy who says things austerely and knows the right words to say at the right time and can get you food and can get you shelter and make you feel good about yourself. No, you've come to see who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness, this is the Son of God. That's who you've come to see, and that's who you've come to identify with. He's God the Son made flesh. One person of the triune God who submits to the will of the Father of his own will and comes and lives a life that you and I can't live to pay a debt you and I can't pay back. We owe a debt to God because of our sinful rebellion. And that sinful rebellion has taken you away. You need but look at your own life for the past 24 hours and ask yourself, am I righteous enough to stand before a righteous God? And the answer had better be no if you know anything about you and anything about me. 
But you don't have to. Because God the Son becomes incarnate. That word incarnate is enfleshment. He takes on that human nature and he, to, to be your representative. And he lives that perfect life. So he has no debts of his own to pay, which means he has infinite resources to pay your debt for you and my debt for me. And it's not some fake transaction, you know, God paying himself. God the Son paying God the Father is really God just paying himself, taking money from his right pocket and putting in his left, some kind of fake transaction. No, God the Son, a separate person, a separate mind within the one God, the triune God, the unity of God, pays the debt to the Father. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in the one Godhead, convicts us of our sin, convinces us of our need for that Savior. And so you see in the triune God, the atonement, that cross makes perfect sense because a real debt is paid to a real creditor. And the one who can pay for our debts does it truly. And the Holy Spirit truly convicts you and me. What you're invited to is to say, how do I know how it's true until someone explains it to me? And then it's explained because the beauty of the gospel is not only is it powerful in its emotional message, but it's powerful in its intellectual, it's it's, it's logical and its existential message, you are being invited to a worldview that makes sense in every orb that it can't. And by the way, friend, if you're not yet signed up, if I haven't convinced you yet, I'm not sure I'm going to yet, but um, you're invited to that same thing. You're invited to that same thing. Let me close. The culture can't help but see something attractive in the gospel. Yes, there's going to be a scarlet letter on the believer as the culture is increasingly hostile, but the culture is so soaked in a gospel message because of the transformative power in history of Jesus of Nazareth, this one who only publicly ministered for three short years but was able to overtake the Caesars who reigned for centuries and changed all over the world the power of his gospel. And so a post-Christian culture is at least somewhat Christian, even if it's post-Christian. And it's soaked in it, and it can't help it. And like a newly bathed dog tries to shake the water off, only to find that it can't fully get dry, because there's something of the gospel that remains. So what I'm asking you to remember here, each one of us, you as candidates who are about to be soaked in this gospel sacrament, and you who have already been, remember something. You are to be so soaked in the gospel that the culture around you gets wet just by proximity. Let me pray for us. Then we'll continue with with the actual baptisms. Father, what a tremendous privilege. What an amazing thing it is to watch and witness the public declarations of faith that are about to come. For those, Lord, who have served you for some time and are now making this decision, for whatever reasons they are, Lord, I pray for the sense of the austerity of the moment, for the holiness of the moment, for the glory of the moment to be, to soak in them, Lord, that as the waters dry off, Lord, that the, the, the power of your spirit, Holy Spirit, to soaks them through and through. Those who have made new decisions for Christ, are looking at not only this identification with the one 
who saved them, but they're saying, I identify with him publicly for the rest of my life, and so that this new reality of eternity becomes something I am so soaked with that we can't help but move forward, praising his name and speaking in tough, in tough ways and in tough places and in tough times, Lord, but that we are strengthened ever by your spirit, Lord. Thank you for this privilege. And for, for those here who might not know you, those here who are thinking, I don't know if I've ever made a real commitment to him, but I want to do it today. I pray, Lord, that they make that commitment. I pray, Lord, that they want to be so soaked in this gospel that they get the culture wet just by proximity. They want to give their lives to you. Father, you have soaked creation with your gospel message. Joseph Plunkett's poem, I see his blood upon the rose and the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower, the thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice and carven by his power. Rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating seas. His crown is twined with every thorn. Oh, Father, your cross is every tree. May we be soaked in your gospel message. Prepare our hearts for this beautiful sacrament. Amen. God bless you.